I want to ask you how you respond, how you would respond to those who say they're Christians, but say that the gospel is something other than it is. How should we respond? How should we respond as a church? How should I respond as a pastor? How should you respond as a Christian to those who say they're Christians, teachers or otherwise, and yet they say that the gospel is something other than Christians have always believed the gospel to be? So the gospel is the good news about the person and work of Jesus. Good news. The good news about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, perfect redemption, perfect salvation, that He came and lived a perfect life of obedience, fulfilling the law of God on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in Him, that He died a sinner's death and absorbed all of the judgment that we deserve, even though, even though He deserved none of it, that He was raised from the dead victoriously for lots of important reasons, including for us. That he is ascended as the great king, the great Messiah. He rules and reigns and he promises to return. The good news about Jesus for sinners and we receive it freely based upon nothing we've done, based upon everything that he's done. We trust in him. We rest in him. It's another way of saying we're believing in him. That's the gospel. And yet lots of people, famous people even, famous Christians, celebrities, authors, Influential Christians, not to mention all of the rest of us kinds of people, lots of people who say they're Christians, believe something other than what I just said, something other than what Christians have been saying for centuries that the gospel is. How do we respond? Well, the Bible actually talks about this, and it talks about it in Second Timothy, and we're studying Second Timothy as a church, and so you can find Second Timothy easily in your Bible, and we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking this morning at Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And we have some instruction. We have, I'm going to call them tactics, but really we have instruction from God. So it should be stronger than tactics. Uh, but for the sake of an outline today, eight tactics that help us to deal with, to address, to cope with seasons of gospel unfaithfulness, gospel infidelity, if you will. How do we respond? Maybe to put it a different way, just to... Uh, to kind of catch the point and maybe feel it a little bit, what, what would it be like if over the course of the next month, if a third of you all left because you believe something other than the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel? Somehow you were listening to someone, somehow somebody who's very persuasive, and you came to believe that maybe the resurrection isn't true. Or you came to believe that Jesus didn't live a perfect life of obedience. Or you came to believe that he didn't die a substitutionary sinner's death. Or you came to believe that he was never ascended and he's not ruling and reigning. Or you came to believe that, that it's, yes, what Jesus does plus what we do. And maybe in the end, if we suffer enough, God will accept us. What if a third of the church started believing something like that? Well, what would the rest of us do? What if... Two-thirds. What if 99%? What if, what if one person that you know and love said, I'm still a Christian. I just don't believe that particular reality anymore. I think there's a different way of understanding the gospel other than the way Christians have always understood it to be. How would we respond? How would we respond to the leader of the group 
Those, those are the issues you, you have to grapple with. Um, because we all know people who say they're Christians. Hopefully not a third of Omaha Bible Church within the next month. <laughs> who say they're Christians, but they have a different kind of Christianity. How do we respond? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In Second Timothy, you have Paul... An apostle of Jesus writing to Timothy. Paul's ready to die. He is going to be executed because of the gospel. And Timothy's pastoring a church in a metropolitan area in the first century in Ephesus. There would have been a lot of uh, religion, a lot of different kinds of worship. There were, it was a wealthy place, a place of great education, a place of great commerce. And for whatever reason, the church at Ephesus is facing a crisis and Timothy is struggling with whether or not to be clear and bold about the gospel. The congregation apparently is struggling with whether or not to continue being clear and bold about the gospel. And we do have even people named who were a part of the congregation and who have left and they've come to believe other things are the gospel. So Paul is addressing that matter. And since we all know people who say they're Christians, who say Christianity is something other than what it is, I find it relevant, I find it important, I find it significant, hope you do as well. Tactic number one regarding gospel infidelity, number one, remind, remind, I'll try to keep it to one word and I'll elaborate, but if you just want to write the one word down, remind, that's the first tactic, remind others regarding the gospel, remind those who are still in the Ephesian church, those who are at Omaha Bible church, remind the Christians who are still adhering to classic, historic, biblical Christianity, remind them about gospel realities. He says right there in verse 14, remind them of these things. That's the command to the pastor. And it's a command that's to be repeated. Timothy, keep reminding the Christians about basic gospel realities. Never stop reminding the Christians about basic gospel realities. In some ways, my whole job seems to be reminding people of things. Guess what we're going to talk about next week? Guess what we're going to talk about the week after that? Guess what we talked about last week? We're going to talk about the truth of the gospel and its implications and, and things like that. And I'm going to keep reminding you. Maybe it's going to be from a different text, a different angle, a different emphasis on what the gospel does or the right response to the gospel. But Peter talks about this. Remind them. Remind them. Paul here. Remind them. Remind them. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And one of the reasons we do it in remembrance of Him. So there's this ongoing need to remind Christians of basic gospel realities. Remind them of these things. The NIV translation picks up on the present tense. Keep reminding them. Never stop reminding them. And it does say remind them of these things. Well, what are the these things? Well, if we go back up right above it, we'll see in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the saying is trustworthy. This is a common Christian saying before it was written in the Bible. This is something that Christians talked about. Remember, most people didn't have Bibles. They for sure didn't have Second Timothy in their Bible at that point in time. So there would be things that they would memorize. Confessions, agreements. We even have them in the Bible. Hymns, so we can remember it by, by song. A lot of commentators think this is part uh, a lyric from uh, an ancient hymn. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him... We will also live with him. 
That's just like, you know, the, the gospel in a nutshell, if you will, encapsulated, concentrated. You know, what happens is if we die with Christ by trusting in Him, we'll live with Christ by trusting in Him. That's how it works. Where do you get eternal life? You get eternal life by the work of Jesus. So that, that's pretty straightforward. If we died with Him, all Christians have, we will also live with Him. All Christians will. But do notice what it says in verse 12. If we endure, if we keep believing, we keep trusting in Christ, we keep affirming the gospel, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. I think what He's doing is just giving them basics, ABCs, one, two, threes. So if you want to have eternal life, ruling and reigning, the, the, the good life, if you will, the, the, be, the best ever, what you need to do is trust in Christ and never stop trusting in Christ. You need to affirm the historic, biblical, Christian, ancient gospel, the truth about His work for you. And if you do that, everything will be great. <laughs> but if you don't, you, you, you cut yourself off of eternal life. That's just ABCs, one, two, threes. There's only one way to gain eternal life. It's through trusting in Christ and believing the true gospel, not a modified, doctored up, changed, easier or harder version. Timothy, keep reminding them of this. So we'll remember to keep looking to the historic one true resurrected Christ and not deviate from that because eternal life is not found apart from that. I think that's the gist of what he's getting at. Remember Jesus in John chapter 6, I believe it is. And he's telling the disciples, there are many disciples. We're not talking about the 12. There are many disciples in that text. And he's, he's telling them some hard things. He's talking to them about how they must trust in him and him alone for eternal life. And that was hard enough for some of them that they left they didn't follow anymore. They didn't want to be disciples anymore because of the fallout, because of the conflict, because of the family issues that it would create or whatever it is. And if you recall, Jesus says to those who are still with him, what? Do you want to go too? And what do they say? Where else, where else should we go? To, to whom else, to use bad language or to, to use bad grammar, Who should we follow? Who should we attach ourselves to? Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. So they continued. But lots of the disciples, it's easy to remember John 666. They left. It's the same kind of thing. ABCs, one, two, threes. Eternal life is found in Jesus. Life, death, resurrection. But eternal life is not found in a different version of Jesus. Because that's the gospel. I think that's what he's getting at here. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Let's move on to another tactic as we think about people who say they're Christians, but they have a different version of the gospel. Well, first of all, remind them that there's only one gospel and that's the only way to gain eternal life. But second of all, another tactic, another instruction, another important thing to remember, number two, avoid. Avoid. Avoid quarreling with gospel deniers. Gospel rejectors. He's saying, uh, avoid fighting with them. There are eight of these. I think we're going to get half of them done, by the way. 
um, because we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So it'll be a, a, a two-part kind of thing, more than likely, because some of you were getting nervous. I saw you looking at your watches and thinking, oh, well, just kidding. Avoid, avoid quarreling with those, avoid fighting with them. And I think the larger picture here, I can't prove it, but I think the bigger picture is, don't, don't, that's not your calling, Timothy. That's not your calling, church. Um, don't get distracted, right? The, uh, the, the, chap- the first chapter and the first part of the second chapter, it's been all about the promotion, protection, gospel, gospel, gospel. So I think he's calling him also to, to, to not be distracted from those things and giving all of your time now to those who are denying the gospel. But he says in verse 14, charge them. So remind them of these things and charge them. I think that them is referring to Christians. So Pastor Timothy, Pastor Pat, Ephesus, Omaha, charge them. Charge the Christians. Exhort them. Challenge them. Plead with them. Tell them this is how it needs to be regarding those who say they're Christians but reject the biblical Christian gospel. Charge them before God. So this is a serious matter. Not to quarrel about words. And this is, again, a present tense kind of thing. It's it's keep telling them this. Keep charging them with, with this reality. It's serious before God tells us that it's serious. Not to quarrel about words. Doesn't mean words aren't important. Words are actually really important. But in the context of they've denied the Biblical gospel, but they still want to talk to you all the time about this, that, or other, some other kind of nuance, minutia. He's like, you know what? They've already rejected the, in the context, they've already rejected the truth about the gospel. You need to not give yourself to arguing with them about other kinds of details. It's not really the point. It's not really the point at all. I don't think he's saying details don't matter. I think details actually do matter and words actually matter. Read Galatians. It really matters. But if they're not even affirming the ABC's one, two, three's truth about Jesus, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted with arguing about the minutia kinds of things because there's a bigger issue involved. They're the same exact Greek phrase is used in First Timothy, uh, in First Timothy chapter six, and I think it helps us to to see the point. And I think I've already been explaining it in light of that, but I don't want you to take my word for it. So if you look at First Timothy chapter six, you see the the same verbiage used, and he is talking about false teachers, and he is talking about this: don't quarrel about the minutia when the elephant in the room is denying the gospel itself. First Timothy chapter six verse f- three says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, context would be a a gospel doctrine, a gospel teaching, and does not agree with the sound words, that's a a synonym he, he loves to use for the gospel, the sound words of or regarding our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, again, another way of saying the gospel, I believe, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, and here's our phrase, quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, etc. So I think that kind of helps us to, to understand it in a way I was basically explaining a moment ago. They're not affirming the sound words, the healthy words, the gospel words, the sound doctrine words, and so do we really want to spend our time arguing about words here and there 
and miss the whole point. He's saying, don't do that. That's not what you've been called to do as a church. That's not what you've been called to do as a pastor. That's not what you've been called to do as a Christian who's a member of a church. Avoid that. Don't get sucked in. Avoid that. Why is this such a big concern? He says in verse 14, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. That's pretty straightforward. And I kind of want to say, but he's saying it's not doing any good. If people reject the gospel, they don't have eternal life. The one way they're going to gain eternal life is by affirming the gospel. I'll still preach Christ to anybody and everybody. Faith does come by hearing. I absolutely will do that. But to get in the weeds about words and minutia, ain't got time for that. <laughs> okay. And it's not just ain't got time for that. He's, he's saying it's not just a waste of your time. It's actually, it's not going to do any good. And it's actually going to lead to trouble. So I'm going to take that advice. Next one. Next tactic. Oh, I, I probably should say one more thing. I have time. Do you have time? <laughs> Some of this could sound too one-sided. I think all of this is true and right and biblical. Don't get me wrong. There are other texts that we're not cross-referencing to where to be a pastor, you have to be able to teach sound doctrine. This is according to Titus and refute those who contradict. So I don't think Paul is denying himself and what he teaches elsewhere. Okay. But I think the emphasis is sure. You'd better be able to say that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. That's true. But the emphasis here is people who deny the gospel reject the gospel, but they still want to argue with you about points of minutia. And maybe Timothy needs to know how to overcome the objection of the point of minutia, but he doesn't give himself to engaging, engaging, engaging. Seems to be the spirit of, if we look at Titus and Second Timothy. Okay, next tactic, next, next point of instruction. This is the third one. We're going to do four this morning. Number three, seek, seek. As in seek God's approval. Seek God's approval. We're going to see this in verse 15. Oftentimes what ends up happening is I'm trying to seek the, the approval maybe of that person. Maybe, maybe of other people and their friends. Or all of their followers on Facebook. Or whatever it is. Whom, who am I trying to please? Who, who am I, who, who's my ultimate audience as a Christian pastor? Who is our ultimate audience as a Christian church? Who are we trying to please in all of this anyway? Well, how about this? Verse 15, do your best. Be diligent. Work hard is the command. Do your best. What? To to do what? Verse 15 says, to present yourself to God. Oh, what I need to be thinking about in pastoral ministry and church ministry, I'm doing my best to, to, to please God in all of this. And this is what he's called me to do. And so I have to keep that in mind. Remind them of that too. To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's where my focus needs to be. I need to not be distracted by that and, and, and winning the argument and making myself look good because how smart I am or whatever it might be. What I need to be doing is working hard. And he uses the imagery from carpentry, from masonry work, from work, basically. 
you're good at your job, you pay attention to the details. Right? You don't do shoddy work. You don't do work that a, a master carpenter would frown on, right? If you're a carpenter. You don't just throw it together. He's, he's using that kind of imagery. No blems. Okay? Not just thrown together. And what is it regarding for us as a church and for me as a pastor and any other pastor who's listening? For Timothy included? Right there. Rightly handling the word of truth. And that is a synonym that he uses for the gospel, the truth about the truth, the truth about the word, the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our focus is getting the gospel right, being clear on what the gospel is. That assumes we're being clear on what the gospel is not. And the gospel is super simple, right? The good news, the good news about Jesus, the good news about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. That's a child can understand the gospel, but there, there's a whole lot involved, right? I mean, Romans is all about the gospel and it's, you know, Paul's doctoral dissertation. I mean, there's a whole lot involved and the pastor and Christians by application and churches by application, they need to think in terms of, I want to please God and what is pleasing to God, telling the truth about his beloved son is priority number one. So we can talk about his vicarious substitutionary life and his vicarious substitutionary death. And we can talk about the resurrection and he's justified at his resurrection. He's raised for other people. He's vindicated. We could talk about all, I mean, there's so many things and factors that we could talk about that relate to the gospel. And we should, if we're going to be clear on anything, since first Corinthians 15 does say it's of first importance, Paul got that memo. And wrote it. <laughs> We're going to work hard at faithfully handling the gospel. It's got to be priority number one. It is got to be our passion. And there will always be a need for it. Literally, it's rightly dividing the word of truth. And some people have taken that and made a mess of it. Um, that's proof that there are two peoples of God and that's pr- I mean, two different ways of salvation. And he's talking about the word of truth. He's talking about the gospel, right? Rightly dividing as in if you're a tent maker and you've got to make your cut here as you're cutting the hides because you're going to make a tent like Paul did, borrowing that kind of imagery, you cut it straight. You rightly divide it. You don't do shoddy work. That, that, that's just, it's just imagery. And it's great imagery, but the point is our priority Omaha Bible Church has to be the gospel. We've got to own it. We've got to understand it. We've got to understand that when it is compromised, we see it for what it is because we've been looking at the real deal. And yet, how many times do you talk to someone, try it, it's uncomfortable, who says they're a Christian and you say, oh, the pastor encouraged us today to ask other Christians what the gospel is. And I'm not saying they're false teachers that they get the answer wrong. But it's a problem. I remember speaking at a pastor's conference, and I stopped doing this because it got uncomfortable and embarrassing. I would say, true or false, the essence of Christianity, the essence of Christianity is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourselves. True? Oh, true. 
false. The essence of Christianity is not love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the law. It's it's no wonder we have problems. That's true and right and good. But there's a reason why there's a cross up there, right? And not the Decalogue. There's a reason why we, we we don't have the Ten Commandments up there. They're true and right. But the essence of Christianity is... The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when somebody says this is the essence of Christianity and it's blatantly wrong, I hope your spiritual spidey senses are going nuts. <laughs> right? Your discernment is going crazy like that. That's so not true. That, that would be a different gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. When we have newcomers classes, we've been doing it for years now. I like to say, you shouldn't be a member of this church if the gospel is of first importance and you don't know what the gospel is. Right? If you're going to join the team, you probably need to know the most basic thing about the team. Right? So we don't hand out jerseys until they get the gospel right. But I like to say, if you just tell me that the gospel is the good news, you get a passing grade. Now... Let's, let's do better. It's the good news about Jesus. Oh, good. Now we're moving right up in the class. And how about the good news about who Jesus is? The eternal son incarnate came to earth, became one of us. Let's talk about Jesus' life of fulfilling the law. Let's talk about Jesus' death, his suffering throughout his whole life and his atoning sacrifice that makes us right with God and, and, and satisfies the justice of God. And let's talk about the resurrection. Let's talk about the ascension because he's our high priest who, who always lives to intercede on our behalf. And, and let's talk about all of those other things. But let's make sure we talk about it. Let's make sure we do that. God wants us, before we do anything else, to agree with him about his son. Right? Doesn't that just make sense? Makes a whole lot of sense. And I find it motivating because the need is huge. The need is so huge. Lots of Christians don't know what the gospel is and then lots of People who say they're Christian pastors and Bible teachers present something other than the gospel. And they call it the gospel. The need is big. The need is massive. Which makes me excited. Present yourself to God as one approved. In His sight, maybe not other people's sight. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what we're aiming to be and do, to be careful regarding the gospel. It's of first importance. If we look ahead to verse 18, there are those who have swerved from the truth. That's our greater context. We better know what the gospel is. Some people talk about the gospel and they're not even in the right lane anymore. They've swerved. Okay, let's do a fourth one. Next tactic for facing gospel infidelity. 
would be avoid. It's another avoid. There's a lot of avoids in this whole thing because a lot of it has to do with the false teachers who used to be a part of the church and have left the church and are trying to influence the church. So the next one is another avoid. Avoid, and it's going to be avoid naturalistic musings. Avoid naturalistic musings. And the words he, he's going to use are words for naturalistic musings. Okay. And before we read them, let me just remind you that Christianity is unashamedly not based upon naturalism. Like baked in the cake, right? Just ABCs, one, two, threes. We're talking about something that's miraculous. We're talking about the eternal son incarnate becoming a human being. We're, we're talking about bodily resurrection from the dead, which doesn't happen every day. Okay, we're talking about something supernatural, something that God does, not something that we do. So we, we don't shy away from that. So Paul's going to say, in a negative way, don't forget that. Here we go. But avoid, there's our imperative, and keep avoiding, literally, avoid and keep avoiding irreverent babble. Doesn't sound very nice. He seems like he's grumpy. He's not grumpy. We're talking about the gospel, right? And so don't get sucked into the debate and argument. And he calls it irreverent. It's, it's a word that could be, you, you could translate it unholy. It's a word for ordinary. It's a word for natural. Avoid irreverent babble, arguing back and forth, getting sucked in because somebody's version of Christianity and version of the gospel has to do with not the supernatural, but the natural. And he's saying, that's dumb, right? Don't, don't get sucked into that. And, and for sure, don't get sucked into it. So you too, then try to start explaining Christianity because maybe you want a bigger church or a bigger following. And you think it's going to be good because God wants more people. And so you get sucked in and you try to argue Christianity as a naturalistic religion, and it's not. He calls it babble, dumb talk. Don't be a naturalist in your explanation of the gospel because the whole point of it is it's a supernatural work. But avoid irreverent, ordinary kinds of arguments. Babble, empty chatter. Don't do that. That's silly. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, down to verse 18, there are going to be those who deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. They're going to have some kind of naturalistic attempt to explaining the resurrection, and they end up denying the bodily resurrection, which would be a miracle. And so I read our command in light of that. He's like, he's saying, so, so don't go there. That's not Christianity. That doesn't make any sense. I'm always amused when scholars want to talk about the historical Jesus. I actually like to use that phrase a lot. I talk about the historic Jesus in sermons, and I talk about the Jesus of history, and I talk about one Friday afternoon outside of the city gates in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, in time and space, in real history. Jesus was crucified. He also was raised three days later bodily in real time and space before eyewitnesses. All of that's logical and that makes sense. And I like to talk about the historic Jesus. But in scholarship, the historic Jesus, the quest for the historic Jesus is just naturalism. It's how can we explain this person who we know existed 
some 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and had big followers and all of these things, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was a real person. Archaeology confirms it. Is there a way we can explain Christianity and still be Christians and deny all the miracles? The quest for the historic Jesus. Every Christmas time, just pick up the magazines. Do they still have magazines? I don't know. I think they do at the, gro- at the grocery store. And there's the magazine. It's all about Jesus. And then at Easter time, they, ha- they do it there. It's always the same thing. The quest for the historic Jesus. The quest. Christianity is about the historic Jesus. And the historic Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. It's a miracle. It's not illogical. But I can't raise people from the dead. I've never seen someone raised from the dead. And therefore, Christianity can't be true. So I've got to come up with a way of not having the resurrection, but Christianity is still true. Doesn't make any sense. We step into and embrace the supernatural. God did that. Yeah, but I can't do that. That's right. (laughs) You can't. It's kind of the whole point. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in a person, a historic person, who was raised from the dead. And there were eyewitnesses. That's the historic Jesus. But apparently there were people leaving the Ephesian church, denying basic one, ABCs and one, two, threes of the Christian faith, but they still wanted to say they're Christians. They still wanted to say they affirm the gospel, but they're denying the gospel. And Paul is saying, don't get sucked in. Avoid the babble. Avoid the naturalistic attempts to explaining Jesus because you're, it doesn't do any good. It's actually a problem. It says in verse 16, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene, which is something that kills. It doesn't bring life. What an image. It's a gross image. But there, there is this attempt, right? And this is, this is super popular. Whole denominations have embraced this. If we want to keep people and we want to be influential and we want to be accepted in the academy and if we want to really be considered intellectuals, then we have to come up with naturalistic explanations and then we get sucked into thinking somehow it's going to be better. And Paul's saying, it's like gangrene, you dummy. It's about the bodily resurrection. <laughs> it's about substitutionary atonement. You're not helping anybody. And by the way, you make Jesus out to be a liar. This whole thing is a house of cards because he said he would be raised. And so it's not going to help anybody. It's it's deadly. And he says in verse 17, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So they're real people who thought this would be a great idea. And maybe you feel the rub. Maybe you feel the rub in a certain culture where if you affirm basics, one, two, threes, ABCs about truth and the truth of the gospel, it's going to be a turnoff to people. Newsflash, they crucified Jesus and he did, he did it perfectly. And, but we all like to be liked and we like to be loved and we have mortgages to pay, right? Mouths to feed. And, cert, and during certain seasons, it's extra unpopular. So what are we going to do, Timothy? I'm trying to pass you the baton. 
Are you going to carry it or not? That's a great question for every church of every era. We're going to carry it or not? Come heaven or high water? Are we going to do this or not? Paul's challenging Timothy. Verse 18, who have swerved from the truth, no doubt the truth about, about Christ, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Maybe it's a resurrection in your heart. Maybe it's a resurrection of some other kind. He doesn't elaborate, but somehow the resurrection's already happened. I mean, the, in one sense, you could say what's happening is this is first century Joel Olstein. Resurrection's already happened. You know what's going to happen when you're raised from the dead? You're not going to struggle anymore. Uh, you're going to have a perfect life. You're going to be perfectly happy when you are raised from the dead. No more tears. You'll never worry about a paycheck. You'll be a joint heir with Christ and you'll enter into the fullness of riches of being a joint heir and rule and reign with Christ. You will be having your best life. We say that's all ours, but we don't enter into that until the resurrection happens. That's when that happens. This is some kind of weird, over-realized eschatology, end times view kind of thing. Or maybe it's it didn't really happen. It's just something that happens in your heart, but it's not based upon historical fact. Who knows what it is? Regardless, it's they're getting a certain important aspect of the gospel wrong. That's what's happening. And do notice it says in verse 18, they are upsetting the faith of some. Right? Some of their Facebook friends are getting sucked in. To be anachronistic. You get the idea. Who's on? I'm not even on Facebook except, never mind. Let's <laughs> Timothy wasn't either, just so you know. All right. Verse 19. But... But God's firm foundation stands. Just remember what's true from God's perspective, Timothy. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. That's good. That's so good to remember that. When things are upside down and chaotic and I'm believing in Jesus profoundly but simply and it's good to know that the Lord knows those who are his he knows I'm trusting in him even though it's leading to a lot of chaos in my life and my relationships and then also the the seal of the Lord that it's it's unbreakable that is sure that has his blessing using that signet kind of uh, analogy and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity just basic truths I belong to him and I don't want to live sinfully and I want to have good ethics. And I might suggest to you that in the context that the most important ethical thing you'll ever affirm, that the, the, the best of all would be agreeing with God about who his son is. Good gospel ethics, not to mention the other kind of stuff that should come in our lives as a result of trusting in Christ. We should probably stop there. I'm so thankful that so many of you know what the gospel is. I'm so thankful that you know it enough to say, I know when I hear something called the gospel that's not the gospel. These are great, great, great days. But if you don't think there is a huge need out there, you're not paying attention. There's a huge need. My prayer is that you would see yourself as a missionary. 
not to go scold people, but to help people and encourage people because a whole lot of talk surrounds what's called the gospel that ends up not being the gospel. The wonderful thing is once you do see it for what it is, based upon God's seal, if you will, he knows those who belong to him and you, 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 you can't undo it. And I like to say you can't unsee it. And it becomes magnificent in our eyes. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the text of scripture we've been able to look at today. We know that you know what's true and what's not true. We don't claim to know everything, but we do know what the gospel is. And it's the good news about your son, the Lord Jesus, who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And we're thankful to know that we have spiritual rest in Christ and we long for the day when he will return. Strengthen us and encourage us even now as we eat and drink in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. May it be a great act of worship. May it also be a great act of receiving a good gift from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.